Sojourn. There we are. Thanks for coming. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, As a church, we exist to make disciples. We know that disciples don't get made unless there's the Word of God. The Word of God is actually what creates us as the people of God. It forms us as the people of God, but it also fuels us forward as the people of God. And so we need God's Word each and every week. And so each week here at Sojourn, we turn to God's Word. We're back in the book of Proverbs this week. We're looking at uh, some different stuff in the book of Proverbs. You might have noticed we went through nine chapters of Proverbs, but in chapter 10, there's a new heading in your, your book of Proverbs, and it says, now begins the Proverbs of Solomon. And if you read anywhere from 10 on to almost the end, you, you find Proverbs shifts from thought to thought over and over and over again. Like, there's not a lot of uh, cohesive passages. It's, it's one verse is a thought and the next verse is another thought. And so whereas in chapters 1 through 9 of the book of Proverbs, we could kind of get away with going with segments of passages together, uh, we're, we're out of that to where it, it'd be very, very difficult to do that. And so what we, we think is an a, a easy way to kind of organize and to even have uh, study it together is to be able to look at the broad themes that we see throughout, trace throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs. And so that's what the next several weeks in the book of Proverbs will be, starting with pride and humility. And and just by that topic, you know that we need to just stop for just a minute and just beg the Lord to be gracious to us. So let's pray together. Father, we, we need your grace now to see this more than we even know. I need your grace more than I even know. God, would you be gracious to us during this hour? And uncover what needs to be uncovered and convict us where we need to be convicted and lift us up where we need to be lifted up, that you might receive glory, that your people might be built up. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One author said, there is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. We may be blind to it. We might ignore it. But God isn't blind to it. And God doesn't ignore it. And God isn't neutral to it. We're talking about pride. And this book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, would have us avoid this vice of pride keeping us and our hearts free from arrogance in all forms in our lives. Now, wisdom is meant to lead us to wise action, which would be the rejection of pride and the putting on of humility. And so what Proverbs does as we look at pride and humility across this book is it gives us a few things really clearly. It gives us God's stance on pride, God's consequences, is for pride and his solution to pride. See, there's a crystal clear, even a frightening stance that we see from God on pride and arrogance in the book of Proverbs. You see it in Proverbs chapter 16, starting in verse 5. Proverbs 16, 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in, in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. And so there's absolutely no mistaking God's stance on arrogance, God's stance on pride. He's not even close to even being neutral here. It's abomination to him. And this is a a very universal statement. This is everyone without 
distinction. You can be Jewish or non-Jewish, rich and poor, from the king's uh, family or not from the king's family. It doesn't really matter. Everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. We're reminded even in that that everyone who's just arrogant in his heart, it doesn't even have to show itself externally, although we're certain that it probably will. But even if you're arrogant inside, internally, if you can hide it and cover it up really well, he says even there, God knows, sees, and is not neutral toward the pride that's there. It's an abomination to him. The language is really clear and really strong, and we probably wish it was less of both. So that maybe we could wiggle our way around this a little bit more. Pride has already headed the list that Pastor John preached in Proverbs chapter 6. You remember the seven deadly sins in chapter 6? It started with a haughty spirit, haughty eyes. You're seeing the world through a prideful lens. In chapter 8, we saw it as well. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. In chapter 8, we saw that it was wisdom, almost that the voice of wisdom, it's wisdom herself was speaking. You know that God is the voice of wisdom. But it, it reminds us, again, in the personified way in the Proverbs, that wisdom is opposed to pride, too. That pride goes against and kicks against the, the very first principle of wisdom. Which is what? The beginning of wisdom is, is fear of the Lord. Pride does not fear the Lord. When we think of the world's worst sins, maybe even our own, we, we might think of, well, the, the ultimate sins like murder, or one that's a hot button all around us today is hypocrisy. All these people say one thing and then they do another. They're hypocrites. That's the worst. That's way worse than whatever sin you're calling out. But when you think of a list of what are the kind of the top sins, does pride make the list? Let's make sure that we don't have a neutral stance toward it. Let's reflect God's stance, which is really clear and really strong. Everyone, 16.5, who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. If we're going to take the stance that God has toward pride, then we're going to have to know what pride is. And so when we're talking about pride... Here's what we're not talking about. When we, we, most of the time when you, you say this to your children, like, I'm proud of you, son, or I'm proud of you. Like, most of the time when we use it that way, that's kind of the pride we're talking about. That normally is a pride of, of like warm affection and admiration. When we say that we take pride in our work, we're not talking about the kind of pride that's being spoken in the scripture. Taking pride in your work could be, I'm, I'm pleased with what happened here. Those can be good things. Now, those could also be evil things. You could be proud of your children in the wrong way. You could be proud of your work in a wrong and sinful way. But for the most part, in general, the way we use those is not the kind of pride we're talking about. So what are we talking about? One author helps us out here. Pride is the mindset of self. It's a focus on self and the service of self. It's a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation. and a desire to control and use all things for self. You might see one word repeated over and over there, and that really gets at the heart of pride, right? It's the word self. It's over and over again. It's in the middle. Self is the center of life. That's essentially the essence of pride, is that when you put yourself in the center, the the mindset of self is opposed to God. One author said that it's like uh, pride is what's contending for supremacy with God. It's self contending for supremacy with God. That's pride. 
That's why pride is described as the kind of the essence of all sin. People would say, like, what's well, all summed up in pride. I think that's true. It's the sin that leads to all their sins. It seems to be the, the fountainhead of all sins. At the root of every sin, you're going to see some sort of pride where you're trying to put yourself at the center and you're contending with anything else that would try to compete in that center with yourself. That's pride. Pride is what stirs up our ingratitude, our anger, our impatience, our discontentment, our envy, our judgment of others, our judgment of God. Pride is what gives us an inflated view of our own importance, our own talents, our own knowledge, our own strength. Pride is what turns on this this false humility by, by playing lowly that we might receive praise and admiration. Pride shows some some self-pity in order to gain some praise and attention of others. Pride is what convinces us that we can do more and be more than we're capable. Pride is what wants us to get in on everything because we have to be in on all things. Pride is what drives our perfectionism. Pride drives our over-talking and always having an answer to everything. Pride drives our defensiveness, our hurtful speech, our blame shifting. It's pride that rejects authority, that rejects dependence, and refuses correction, but instead loves independence and control. It's pride that keeps us from serving others, from being compassionate, from admitting wrongs, from praying. It's pride that is this internal judge that wants to maximize other sins and minimize our own. It's pride that this is this internal accountant that is constantly comparing ourselves with others to see if we have more than somebody else. It's pride that keeps the focus on the self and will battle with anything else that tries to threaten the center of life for supremacy. All of those things are pride and much more. And literally, we could probably do this all day. We can try to ignore all of those things. We can even try to call all of those things by different names. But the reality remains. Examples of it are all through the scripture. Evidence of it are all through our hearts. You know, I came up with that list. I just looked inward. So can we just stop? I'll just stop and admit that pride is present in many places in our lives. And we need the grace of God to help us see it rightly and deal with it rightly. Can we just stop and do that together and admit like we have an issue here that we need God to deal with? Let's, let's get that out of the way. We're, we struggle with pride. And if we want to make progress in any sort of fight against sin and temptation, you know where we need to start? We might want to start with pride. If we want to make progress in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of wisdom, in our pursuit of knowledge of God, we need to start with pride. C.S. Lewis said that the first step is to realize that one is proud. And then I love this. And a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. And we might not have any idea to the degree that pride has taken over our lives. We might not even know where it's manifesting itself most severely in our lives. But we have to start there no matter what. That it's in our lives. And then we lay it down. Realization of any pride in any degree, in any form, is God's grace to us because it's not only definitely there and it's mostly unseen to our eyes and unknown. And so for God to show us that there is pride is his grace to us. It's grace because he hates it. 
And if we want to live life with him, if we want to have the good life that he has created us for in relationship with him and in relationship with others, we're going to have to go after pride. And so it's good for him to point it out and to invite us into the good life. So God's stance on pride is, is extremely clear. And so should ours. And there should be a really clear stance from Christians, from believers, from the people of God that say, yeah, we hate pride. And not just outside of us, we have to be saying that we hate pride anywhere we can find it inside of us. It's an abomination. It has to go. So God's stance on pride is clear, and so are the consequences for pride. God's consequences for pride are given. Chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone who has arrogant in his heart and is an abomination to the Lord, be assured he will not go unpunished. Skip down to chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Flip over a page to chapter 18, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Skip to Proverbs 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low. I mean, th- the arrogant won't go unpunished. Pride will bring you low. Pride goes before destruction, before a fall. Uh, this is the, the, the consequences God has for pride. And so we think, well, when's this fall coming? When's this destruction coming? Is it now? Maybe. That happened. You, you might remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the scripture. He started looking around after being warned and saying, look at this mighty kingdom that I've built. And God turned him into a beast, essentially. You might remember Herod in Acts, the book of Acts. You remember the story in Acts chapter 12? In Acts chapter 12, Herod is speaking very arrogantly. It says, and on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, the, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last so yeah, maybe now, maybe God will, will visit judgment upon arrogance in our hearts now. Certainly later, we know that from the Proverbs that what he's talking about in his, his consequences for pride is, that they're, pride is that they are inescapable. They will not go unpunished is what Proverbs tells us. In the end, what pride does is it humiliates. Arrogance, what it will do is it will bring low without exception. And so in this mindset of, of self and the mindset of pride, that we, we need to know that that's going to lead us to demise. Because if you're fighting for and contending for supremacy with God, which is pride, right, you will lose. God will win that fight, and he is telling us he will win that fight, so we might not go that direction. He's saying this will not go unpunished. It cannot go unpunished. For God to be God and for God to be just and holy and good. In the end, the self, which thought it had supremacy, is going to be dealt with by the one who actually has supremacy. And so what is wisdom? What wisdom does with this pride in Proverbs is it exposes its darkness and it exposes its consequences clearly. And so what it's trying to do is, is show us not only here's how bad it is, here's where it's leading, but it's trying to equip those who would have ears to hear. You give the people who are wise, who have that kind of spidey sense being developed in them where they're kind of figuring things out like, I know I don't need to go that direction. It's developing that so that we might run from sin, that we might run from pride. So that we might be able to walk in a way that would bring honor and glory to the Lord. See, the exposure of sin and its consequences are equipping us 
Because wisdom runs from sin. Wisdom runs from pride. If there's real fear of the Lord in us where we have awe before the Lord and intimacy with him because we know him and we love him and we want to obey him, we trust him, then what God hates, we hate. And what God wants to punish, we want to run from. That's what wisdom does. This is why you will not find a wise person in the world who is full of pride. That's an oxymoron. That you would be wise and full of pride. Where there's one who is full of pride, you can be assured that there's one who is not wise. Because what pride leads to is destruction. How unwise would you have to be to give yourself to pride and call yourself wise, knowing that pride leads only to destruction? That's not wisdom, that's foolishness. And so here we have in Proverbs so clearly, so, so clearly, so strongly that God's stance on pride is that he hates it. And his consequences for pride is that there's coming destruction for it. And so the question is, and how are we to escape the punishment that we deserve for our pride? Because we, we fall into this category, and God hates pride. And how do we escape it? We, we know that destruction is the consequence for pride, so how do we get out? Well, there is a solution. As clear as God's stance and consequences, so is God's solution. Back in chapter 16, verse 19. So pride, verse 18, goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than divide the spoil with the proud. Back in chapter 18 again, verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. Back again in chapter 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And so here we have this paradox that, that kind of continues, right? We have the, you know, pride is going to humiliate you in the end. But humility, that is actually what's going to be lifted up in the end. The humble are going to be the ones that are lifted up. And so it's clear, here's your way out of this, this vice of pride and the destruction that's going to follow it is that you make yourself lowly, that you be humble. Humility brings honor. It's better to be lowly. Humility doesn't bring destruction. And so the way out is humility. Humility is the way. One author says it this way, that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy. You need to know that greatest enemy is not something external, but it's internal, and it's called pride. That's your greatest enemy in every stage of development, in every stage of maturity. But humility is our greatest friend. So what is true humility? I think simply put, for just thinking simply about humility, humility is a right view of God and a right view of ourself in light of this God. Now, one author describes it this way, that humility is accurately understanding ourselves and our place in the world. Humility is, is knowing where we came from and who, who our people are. Humility is understanding that without God we are nothing. That without His care, without His provision, without His love we would still be dust. Humility is reminding us that we, we were just dirt before and that God had to come and breathe life into us for us to even to be in existence. It's so He's supreme and we're not. We need to view him rightly and view ourselves rightly. In his book, uh, Timothy Egan, in his book, The Worst Hard Times, is kind of about the Dust Bowl and, and a lot of it centers around life here in the Southern Plains. He said that the Southern Plains is a place where the land and its weather, probably the most violent and extreme on earth, demand only one thing, humility. He's like, let's just take the southern plain like it's, 
weather and all these other things, the land itself, like all that, you factor all that in and it should produce one thing in the people that come here, that's humility. A right view of the land, a right view of the weather should lead to humility. That ought to be what we are, a right view of God, given who he is and what he has done, that he created all things from his, his being. He spoke and things came to existence. Given a right view of, of our own lives as creatures with a creator, that we are just dust that got breath and came to the world with absolutely nothing and will leave with absolutely nothing, should make us humble. Right view of those things should produce one thing in us, and that's humility, that we should be dependence. That's what we are. We have no right for pride because we are completely contingent, dependent beings. Here's what we literally have to do. We have to take things that were created, food, and we have to chew them up and swallow them down, and then there's going to be waste just to survive. Like, that's our living. And yet, we contend for supremacy with God. The, the skin that's loose on our hands and our fingertips like, ought to remind us all the time that we're dying. We're dependent creatures. Like We can't keep things going. And so what humility does is it starts to see things rightly and embraces them as they actually are. God is supreme and he owes us absolutely nothing. And it says that, that if he's supreme and he created us and he formed us and he's our designer, that he is the one who is to be in the center and that we are not to fight against him for centrality God is the center, not the self. And what this doesn't mean then is that we think of like a hierarchy, like, okay, well, God's number one, and then we have to be number two. And that's not exactly how it goes. It's not as if self is moved out of the center and demoted. And we put God at the center, and self just is not thought of anymore, or at least thought of much less. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his helpful, tiny little book that we'd encourage you to pick up, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says that the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. We're not calling for you to think less of yourself. Here's what it is. It's thinking of myself less. That's a key distinction. That humility is not needing to think about myself. The self isn't at the center anymore. That God's at the center and so we're not as worried about myself. That's humility. And the people of God ought to be the most humble people on the planet. Right? Because we're the ones who are saying we have a right view of God and his greatness and his glory. And we have a right view of ourselves. Creatures dependent upon him. Even sinful creatures that are in need of him. We ought to be the most humble people in the planet. We are the people who literally say that we can't even exist apart from God. In him we live, move, and have our being. We don't exist apart from him. We can't exist apart from him. We say that all the time. Christians specifically, those who have trusted in Christ, are the people who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That our salvation comes completely and fully from another. That we depend upon him fully. Our confession is what? Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. We are desperately saying in our lives that our life, our new life, our eternal life are all dependent on some guy who is dead and rose from the grave. We're saying that as Christians. Salvation is not something we could ever do. It's something that God had to do, and he did it in Jesus, and those things are humbling. So here's the question. Does humility mark the people of God? Does humility mark you? Does humility mark us? You see, the problem is that the clarity of the solution to pride is not equaled with the ease of accomplishing it. Christians know this well, right? Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this tape letters, and, and in it there's a, a demon, under demon, kind of right into an over demon. 
That's essentially the setup, and they're trying to take a patient down, a human down. And here's one of the things that he writes. He says, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. I think that sums up so well the difficulty of the solution. And if you've walked in, in wisdom and in the fear of the Lord, trying to honor and serve him and lower yourselves, you know the difficulty of this in your life. It's like, how do you fight pride? Like, okay, humble yourself. And then you start going down that road, and then you're like, you, you recognize, like, man, look where, look where I'm at. It's pretty awesome. And then we start all over again. So how do we do it? How do we walk humbly? How can we get low? How can we be lowly in spirit as God prescribes in Proverbs, in the Scripture? Well, we saw the first step. C.S. Lewis already gave that to us. The first step is realizing our pride, that there's no advancing beyond that. If you can't recognize your own pride, there is no advance whatsoever. And that you probably need to examine yourself very closely to see if you're even part of the people of God at all. Because if you can't recognize your own pride, then it's probably not true that you've recognized that you need a Savior. So we can't go beyond that. There's no advance. That's a right view of ourselves. We have pride. Now you see David, he's this great king, and he has Bathsheba, kills her husband. You remember the story? And then there's a prophet that comes to him. His name is Nathan. And he starts telling this story. You know, like, hey, there's this guy, he had a lamb, and he took, he had all these lambs, and he took this one guy, he just had one lamb, he took it and slaughtered it and used it for a party. Like, what do you think about that man? And David's like, let's get that guy. Can't do that, that's unjust. And what is it, you remember Nathan's words here? You, that's, you're the man. The whole story, David's getting fired up because he doesn't suspect, like, Nathan's gonna come and, like, punch him in the gut and say, like, you're that guy. He never suspects himself. And that's what pride does to us, like, We never suspect ourselves. Like, we need to hear today, you're the man. Not like, you're the man. That's the opposite. (laughs) You're the man in the Nathan sense. Like, it's in us too. Like, we never suspect ourselves. And so what we need to do is we need to start learning to suspect ourselves. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. And so, we'll just stop right there. If you're apt to suspect others, you might start thinking, like, maybe that's where the pride's at in me mostly. But a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. Is that us? Are we as suspicious of nothing else more than our own hearts? The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers. that They are low in grace and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about that that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He's apt to esteem others better than himself. Are we the most suspicious about our own hearts? The scriptures say to each one of us in our pride, you're the man. You are that man. Do we know this? Do we know it's in us? Do we know it's lurking everywhere? You see, we need more than a right view of ourself. We need a right view also of of God. That God reveals himself to us in his word. And so you think about what the people, when they were originally hearing Proverbs, what they would have known about God. They would have known about this holy God who descended on Sinai in thunder and lightning and darkness. And he says, don't touch this mountain. He's a holy God. 
They would have thought maybe of Isaiah who, who went before the presence of God, saw this vision of God on his throne, high and lifted up. There's angels around him singing, holy, holy, holy. It's shaking the thresholds. And Isaiah can just like duck his head as far down as he possibly can and says, woe is me because of this holy God. They would have known of this holy God, this powerful God who can split seas and then cover up an enemy underneath him if he wants to, who can feed them bread from heaven. We could go on and on about what they would have seen about God. We need to see that God rightly. But we also need to see that he's loving, that he's kind, that he could have disintegrated any people at all times because that they are unworthy to live life with him, but he is merciful. He spares them. He's loving to them. He's even forgiving of them. David says this in Psalm 130. He says, with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And that's not just like I'm scared of you, that you might, you might receive our awe our worship, and and us drawing close to you in relationship. That's what he's talking about there. And so we have to know that God and grow in knowledge of that God. And that only begins when we lay down pride and start looking to him as he is and as he has revealed himself to us. And so once we start taking an honest view of ourself, full of pride, going to destruction, once we start taking an honest view of God, this holy God who's also really loving and merciful and just, When we start taking an honest view of those things, we're going to have a problem revealed. And if we're going to know this God, know this God, have a relationship with this God, then we see the problem that we're going to have is grace. Grace is needed for us if we're going to know him. Because we know God's stance on pride. I can't have a relationship with this God, not in my pride. I'm contending with supremacy for him can't have a relationship with this God. This God is holy. He can't can't live with the sin that dwells in my heart, so what am I going to do? You see, knowing God's stance on pride and knowing what we deserve for our pride makes grace completely necessary for all of us. And God is so gracious. He sends his son. He sent Jesus. He takes on flesh. He he comes and he is the one who perfectly does what we can't, right? We can't walk in the fear of the Lord perfectly. Jesus does. He's wisdom. He's the source of wisdom. He speaks, and everything he speaks is true. It's wise. It's good. And in him, we can see grace upon grace. For us, seeing God rightly means seeing God rightly in Christ. means knowing who he is, that he is God, that he is this perfect God-man who walked in the fear of the Lord, who trusted God all the way down to death. Knowing God rightly means knowing God in Christ, means seeing our need for him and how he fulfilled it perfectly. One author said this, that knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. But knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our weakness. And here's the one who can bridge the two. You see, the opposite of pride, the ultimate form of humility, I think, is trust. Faith, it's dependence fully upon Jesus and all that he has done and who he is. That's a right view of God. He is holy. I can't come before him. And that's a right view of me. I'm in great need. And so the opposite, I think, of pride is complete trust in Jesus Christ. The only way to move from pride to true humility is through this God-man, Jesus. And one author says that, and I keep quoting authors because I feel like I know nothing about humility, but so praise me for that, please. 
if we are to have any hope of escaping our pride, we must be grafted onto the one who is humility himself. Are you grafted onto Jesus? That happens when you depend fully upon him, when you trust in him, when you give him your faith. Are you casting yourself down and betting it all on Jesus as your only hope, as your all in all? That's humility. That's what it is. That's the death of pride. When you're saying, I'm betting it all on Jesus' self, I've thrown him out. He's not the center anymore. They can't battle for supremacy with God anymore. Jesus is the center. He's the one who is supreme over all. I'm going to bet it all on him, and if he doesn't come through for me, well, then I don't know. And you know what? That seems dangerous, doesn't it? We feel this need in us from our sinful inclinations in our hearts to make something for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to get glory. I better say something because if I don't, no one else will, and then they'll forget about me altogether. And we just do this in several different ways. That seems dangerous to say, let's just take self out of the center and let's put God there. Let's bet it all on him. That seems dangerous. And humility, I think, is risky. Because here's what it is. It's a complete losing of your life. Jesus said, you want, you want to gain it? You've got to lose it. That's, that's risky. Losing your life is risky. It's dangerous. Saying, yeah, just lose your life. Lose yourself. Take him out of the middle and put somebody else there that everything has to depend upon. But think about the one who's humility himself. We just studied this in Philippians chapter 2. Think of humility himself. What did he do? He was in the form of God. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he made himself nothing. He, he took on flesh. He took the form of a servant. He, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what happened? He humbles himself all the way down to death. And what did his father do? Not, not him. Remember, we, he didn't raise himself up. God the Father raised him up. God raised him up. The Father raised him up. Jesus lost it all in death and was exalted over all as the Father gave him the name that is above every name. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, as one author says, resurrection does not happen apart from humility. Resurrection does not happen apart from surrendering to the Father's will. In this sense, God the Father did not raise Jesus up simply because he was his son. God raised Jesus up because this is how God responds to humility. He exalts those who humble themselves. This is the governing dynamic in God's upside-down kingdom. You go down in order to go up. You go low in order to go high. So yeah, it seems risky to follow this way of humility. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shows us the way up is down. But that it doesn't remain there. Jesus shows us the way, humbles himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, and is raised up forevermore. The way to being raised up is to put on humility. The way to being raised up is to cast off pride. The way up is down. Because pride ultimately humiliates us in the end, and humility ultimately exalts. This is why James and other places in the scripture say that those who humble themselves, those are the ones who are exalted. So if we want to be free of pride, you want to walk in humility as wisdom advises us, then the way is down. It's time to get low. It's going to have a lowly spirit to cast ourselves down, to get rid of pride, and to put on humility. 
Now, one has already gone ahead of us. He, he's already gone down and come out on the other side. And we're, we're following after him. He, he's shown us the way. And because of Jesus, that one vice that we all struggle with, that we can't seem to shake, called pride, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, none of us are slaves to it. That in Christ, pride no longer has power over us. It has lost its power over us. We don't have to walk in it any longer. We don't have to be a people marked with pride. We can be a people marked by humility. We have to follow Jesus to do that. He already led the way. He's bidding us to come and die and follow him in it. Church, brothers, sisters, let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That one day he might lift us up. Father, thank you for your word. Oh God, would you help our proud hearts, even now that are battling for supremacy with you, to humble themselves under your mighty hand in great trust that you are good and that one day you will lift us up. God, we thank you for calling out our pride. Help us to see that as good. And the hurt of seeing all the pride in us and how it's contending with supremacy with, for, with you and is in opposition to you. The hurt that we feel when we see that, God, may you continue to heal it by your goodness, by your forgiving power, and may you be the center of our lives. May you be our all in all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.